Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Jen. We're just two run-of-the-mill casting directors looking to have a little fun while tearing down the curtain on casting, the process, and how the sausage gets made. So many misconceptions have come from outside sources, so we're here to clear the air and make sure everyone gets a full picture of all that goes into casting your favorite TV shows and films. All the while, we'll be drinking some amazing cocktails and spilling the tea on some of the most outrageous stories we've come across in our careers. Maybe we'll even bring on a few exciting guests along the way. Cheers! Cheers! to Tipsy Casting. I'm Jen, and this is my co-host, Jess. Thank you all for so much for tuning in to what's going to be another very insightful episode in the midst of this incredibly chaotic week in the entertainment industry. We originally had other plans. If you listened to our episode last week, you know that we fully intended on bringing a U.S. agent or manager onto the show, and we are glad to report that we have found our guinea pig and recorded a beautiful episode that will eventually have a part two to it. However, for those of you who don't know, the industry is currently at a standstill as the Writers Guild of America are officially on strike. So we thought it was incredibly important to bring on somebody who has boots on the ground and can tell us what it all means for the rest of us. And on that note, I'm so thrilled to welcome the wonderful Bridget Munoz-Leibowitz. Bridget's writing career was launched on the staff of NBC's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She went on to work on comedy series such as TBS, People of Earth, NBC's Abby's Diary of a Future President for Disney+, Plus, HBO Max's Love Life, and on Netflix's One Day at a Time, on which she was also co-executive producer. Most recently, she served as a showrunner and executive producer on the HBO Max original comedy series, Gordita Chronicles from Sony Pictures Television. So grab a cocktail or a mocktail and join us for a fun chat. Good evening. Here we are on another episode of Tipsy Casting, and this time we're here to shine a light on a really important aspect of TV and filmmaking, and that, my friends, are the writers. We are so thrilled to welcome the incredibly talented and kind Bridget Munoz Leibowitz. Hi, Bridget. Hi, we totally nailed that name. Great job. Oh, I got it. I'm ready. <laughs> How you doing? Great, great, great. Thank you for having me. It's so, so great to be part of this podcast. I love this idea. Yes, we're, we've been having a lot of fun and we're excited to talk about you and the industry and all of the things. But before we get started, what are you drinking? Ooh, well, I have my most recent non-alcoholic hack. I'm off the sauce for a while. I'm off of coffee too. It's been terrible. It's allegedly for my health, but we'll see. I've got a elderflower tonic water with bitters and it tastes just like a cocktail it's awesome lovely nice that sounds very refreshing honestly (laughs) what do you guys have i have a i'm gonna say wrong joe sombras mezcal with soda water and lime and we're daring our Dos Ombres bottle between countries because I also am having a Dos Ombres Mezcal with 
I'm trying, I don't know if you've tried this, but like the Betty Buzz cocktail mixer. No. This one's the sparkling grapefruit, the like Lively's company that she started, but it's really yummy. And I put a little bit of agave and lime juice and that's, it's also really refreshing. Delicious. We're getting into the summery drinks now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had red wine a lot of episodes and I was like, okay, we've got to move out of the red wine season. <laughs> red wine is so cozy. There's nothing cozier than a red wine on the couch and a blanket in the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm really excited because, you know, we're in different time zones. Jen's in the UK, she's in London. And so I'm usually a morning drinker because of that. <laughs> so I'm excited not to have a breakfast drink, essentially. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're drinking at an appropriate time for the first like well probably the second time of our podcast <laughs> is it midnight for you Jen it is it's a bit past midnight but you look phenomenal we I knew this we knew this was gonna happen so <laughs> we, we, I'm committed well you look great she's been moving all day or last two days so the fact that she is upright is really surprising <laughs> I appreciate it. You guys, you're bringing the energy, your inspiration. Yeah. I love that. You know, we talk about in one of our previous episodes about like building and nurturing relationships in this industry. And I think our friendship is exactly that because we became friends on the pilot of person of interest. And I think that was like 2013 or 2014, something like that. 2011. Or maybe actually, you're right. That's right. It was earlier. And I was the assistant. And I think you were the APOC, right? No, I was a script coordinator, actually. Oh, script coordinator. But that, yeah, that's so interesting because we yeah. don't usually talk to the script coordinators very often. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was an unusual pilot because it, the security on that pilot was super, super tight. It was at a J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot show. And so because of that, we had all the scripts on lockdown. And so probably the reason we interfaced a lot was because I was in charge of script security. So if you ever needed pages for actors, for callbacks that you had to come through me, I had to code them, which means I had to go through the pages, change something small about whatever pages I was sending you, like a word, and then watermark it so that if the pages ever got out into the world, we would know exactly who the leak might have been or who might have lost the pages, you know? Yeah. Well, then I've had the pleasure of watching your wonderful career flourish and the evolution of you has been so wonderful. And I'm so proud of you on all that you've accomplished over the years that we've known each other. So likewise, likewise. Wonderful. Also, I totally skipped the whole segment that we were going to introduce of the wine of the week. <laughs> but yes, we are introducing the wine of the week this week, which is four minutes of completely unfiltered complaining about anything of your choice. <laughs> Well, what's top of mind and not to cannibalize probably what we're going to talk about later, but some of you may have heard the Writers Guild is on strike. And, you know, I will start whining about the fact that writer pay has declined 23% over the last 10 years. I will whine about the fact that many rooms are killing our industry, writing as a profession, people can't make their years. I will whine about the fact that screenwriters don't get paid to do revisions. What? That's crazy. This contract is so important. These issues have been bubbling up for so, 
so long. And it means so much to so many people, especially women writers, writers of color who are just now making a meaningful inroad into this industry. So much of these recent studio practices really, really are affecting that demographic, making it unsustainable for a career. And so many Many young writers are having to, and not just young writers, actually experienced writers are having to take second and third jobs outside of the industry. It's very common nowadays for us to have to take two, three gigs, four gigs a year, if you can get them. That's the other trick. And it's really, really hard to see people that mentored you who have 25 years of experience, who you looked up to working for mid-scale minimum, the same thing that you know, an entry-level writer would make. I mean, there's something so fundamentally wrong about the current exploitation of our contract. And I will whine about that all day long. (laughs) But I think the other thing I'll whine about, how many more minutes do I have left, by the way? Probably two. (laughs) Two? Okay. Well then, the other thing I'm going to whine about is that the AMPTP is not even like, there's like an elegant way, I think, to negotiate. There's an elegant way to resolve differences. They're being kind of stinkers, <laughs> if, if you ask me. They have been putting out statements encouraging people to cross the picket line. They have been putting out responses to our proposals that are very snooty in tone. The responses to our proposals sometimes don't even exist. They reject them flat out and do not counter. It's been very frustrating for, I think, not just myself, but for our whole membership to watch them not take our issues seriously. I don't know if you saw any of the responses that were posted between what the Writers Guild asked for, what the responses were. One in particular, it's the last thing I'll whine about, but one in particular was about AI. And AI is, you know, a really big concern for writers. As If anybody's played with chat GPT, you know, even though it's a very nascent technology, it's very powerful. And obviously, studios want to create the maximum amount of profit and would love to cut us out of it as a cost if they could. And so <laughs> one of our requests was that AI not be allowed to write material, you know, for these projects and with this contract. And their response to that proposal was no, but we'll have an annual meeting about developing technology. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) that's not our concern. Yeah. Anyway, that's my wine of the week. That's amazing. I love that you brought up the AI thing too, because I've heard that on the casting side as well. Like I've used chat GPT before. I first, I only found out about it recently, but I was using it and someone's like, you could easily just make a casting list. And so a friend was like, yeah, I'm going to go in and be like, give me the best male actors who are, you know, the most popular from ages 25 to 32 and this ethnicity. And it like pops up a whole list. And they're like, well, why can't that just be your job? Like, that's your job. Does it also say if they tech avail or not? <laughs> right. <laughs> you wouldn't consider your project because of the budget or the people involved. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Oh my God, that is scary though. But I bet you, I bet you some exec somewhere has done that already. For sure. We're going to get into all of the nitty gritty of the strike and everything, but we definitely want to talk about you and your journey as well. So how did you get started? What was your first foray into this wild industry? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, it's something that I've been like angling at for most of my life. I'll give you the long version. We have time. Yeah. So, okay. I always was, a, as a kid, always wanted to be like a child star, but I was not cute. I was chubby and not talented. <laughs> so that wasn't going to happen. So I got really into movies and television when I was really, really young. My grandmother, who was a huge movie and comedy fan and librarian, loved to share old movies, old radio programs with me. She had a massive, massive collection that she would tape off television. And on one VHS tape, she could fit like two movies and a TV episode. And she would curate them for me. She'd think, oh, what should Bridget see? And she, it was like a whole education in cinema. And she would tape... Shirley Temple movies and old, you know, screwball comedies. And then because I was, I was, we didn't have cable. I wasn't allowed to watch TV when I was very young. My mom is an educator and really believed, you know, that books are important. She's right. You know what I mean? She really, she really wanted me to read and do music, have hobbies. But of course, that made me all the more obsessed with television and movies. And so my grandmother really wanted me to feel connected to pop culture because where I grew up was a very, very predominantly white place. And I was a little bit different. People who don't know me, I'm half Colombian and half Jewish. And there were not many people like me, if at all there. We think we had like four other Jewish kids and maybe like a black person. It was like very, very... Where did you grow up? I grew up in Santa Clarita, I believe. You know that place. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm there right now. It's changed a lot since I lived there. It's nice now. There's a cheesecake factory. But before when I grew up there, all we had was Kmart and onion fields. I guess it hadn't turned into what it is now. So yeah, that's how I first started to fall in love with TV and movies and comedy. And so I was always pursuing that in junior high. I was the president of the AV club. That AV club still exists today. I got to go back and talk to them. Oh, how cool. Yeah, yeah. And so I applied to the writing for screen and television program at USC where I got my undergraduate degree. And while I was going to school there, I was working at the American Film Institute, which some people know about, some people don't. It's a conservatory. So it's a film school for graduate students, but it's also a preservation society. So there's absolutely incredible pieces of film history. They have an unbelievable archive of film prints and scripts that are, you know, have notes like like production drafts with notes of like incredibly like historic directors, just like in their library. It was an amazing place. It was like the coolest college job ever. My job specifically was working with the directing workshop for women and the conservatory graduate students. And so my job was to help make these short films for the directing workshop for women and also to help the graduate students who are producing them and producing their own thesis projects. And so I helped in the production aspect, helping them get insurance certificates, helping them get equipment packages. And I became really close with a couple of their graduate students who took me under their wing. And I learned so much about producing, which before that, knew nothing about. It was this very nebulous kind of profession. It was like, oh, is it if you have money, are you a producer? Oh, if you like have an idea? Are you? I just had no idea what it was until I saw specifically what line producing is. And there's also like, and you know, at that level of education, there's also some development that goes in there as well. But I really saw, wow, you can take nothing 
and turn it into something. If you're just willing to eat Taco Bell and you're willing to like have craft services and borrow like equipment and do favors for free, you can really make something. And I felt very empowered by watching them do that because in my experience at USC, I did not get great responses for the stories that I was writing, not from USC, but from the agents and managers who I pitched them to as part of our culmination pitch night. They were like, why don't you want to make any money? Like, right, you know, like Terminator, like big studio movies. And that just wasn't who I was. I was writing like quirky little stories through my perspective, which is like a, you know, half Latina, half Jewish person. They didn't know what to do with that. And so I was really empowered by watching these producers make their stories without having to wait for permission. And so I decided I was going to apply to grad school as well. I went to Columbia in New York for my graduate degree in producing. And that was a phenomenal experience. I, I loved it. I learned so much. So many of my close colleagues and collaborators are from Columbia. And I started working as a line producer's assistant. That was my first official job in the industry, the actual industry, not the education part of the industry. Uh, I was assisting a woman named Robin Sweet, who I don't know if you know, Jessica, she's really great producer. She produced Better Call Saul and Castle Rock and so many other things. She's phenomenal and was such a good mentor to me. And little by little, she would refer me for other projects and would give me things that she didn't have the bandwidth for. And so I was able to sort of start my own little career as like line producer, production manager, production supervisor. And I did that in New York for several years, all the while still really wanting to write and wanting to get back to it. I I told myself that I was going to use my producing knowledge as a tool to help make my writing happen. And I hadn't been doing it. I had stayed tapped into the comedy world. I had been doing improv and sketch in New York, but I really wanted to make the transition to television. So I started emailing as many people as I could saying, do you know anyone in television? Do you know anyone in television in New York? Now it's a little different, but back then New York was very indie film oriented and everybody that I would email would be like, no, do you? Because <laughs> everybody else also wanted to make the jump because they could see the direction TV was going. It was becoming what it is now. And so I emailed Robin and I said, I want to go into television. Who do you know? And she said, me, I'm going on to this pilot called Person of Interest. Do you want to come? I said, absolutely. And she said, well, you have to take a step back. You know, you've never worked in TV before. I said, no problem. I just want to move in that direction. And so initially I was hired as the production secretary. Maybe that's what you were thinking. I think so, yeah. But then I the script coordinator because I had some skills from my producing experience that helped me make that easier between the showrunner and the ADs. And so I got to work with Jonah Nolan and Greg Plagerman on the revisions of the script. And when I say work with, I mean, wait for their revisions and then implement them. <laughs> <laughs> And, but they were so kind and so nice. And I wrote a spec episode of Person of Interest, like the next episode, in hopes that they would hire me as their writer's assistant. And they did, which was so incredibly kind of them. And that was in New York. And the room was going to open up in Los Angeles. So they told me I got the job on Memorial Day and the room was starting on Wednesday. So I had to pack up my whole life, which actually I didn't end up doing. I left my boyfriend at the time and all my stuff in my Greenpoint apartment 
and I came out. It was like one of those, like, it was like one of those moments from a movie. They were like, you got the job. And then you have to like, it wasn't a new place for me because I grew up here, but like go to a new place. I didn't have a network out here anymore. All my friends have like moved away except for like one really great friend, my friend, Sarah, who her parents, she and her parents like took me into their house and let me sleep in their spare room. And I lived with them for like the first six weeks after I moved out here, oh, also recovering from a breakup because that boyfriend immediately dumped me. <laughs> and so it was a whirlwind, but working on that show was really, really wonderful. I got to learn TV writing by watching these amazing drama writers. The whole time I was there, I was trying to figure out how to get... Now I was in TV, but I was in drama. I was in sci-fi procedural crime drama, which was not my forte. So I was trying to figure out how do I get from this side of the fence to the comedy side? And back then, the two worlds didn't really cross. They do much more now. So I was like trying to find a contact somehow on the comedy side. And some of the writers, like new comedy writers, and they would set me up on the lunch dates. I started taking classes at Groundlings and iOS to try to like beef up my comedy portfolio. And I was like writing like any spare second that I had on lunch, on breaks, at night, in the morning, trying to come up with a comedy portfolio that would help get me to the next step, whether it was a writer's assistant job on a comedy or an agent or a manager. So kept doing that and then applying to the diversity labs that all the different studios had, getting rejected. I think I applied to them like three different times before I finally got into one of them, which is the NBC Writers on the Verge program, which coincided with me reconnecting with a person I went to USC with a writer named Leah Yerushalayim who had turned agent. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, yeah, I'm trying to be a comedy writer. She's like, yeah, so is everybody else, but good to hear from you. <laughs> and here's my sample. And she was like, okay, this is okay. I will hip pocket you. I'll look out for things that you might be good for. And if you get the job, I'll represent. And I said, that's amazing. And so luckily or unluckily, luckily for me, unluckily for another person, somebody got fired off of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and they were looking for a Latina staff writer. My sample happened to be about women in law enforcement because I was inspired by watching... Part of my job on Person of Interest was to research cop stuff for Taraji Henson's character. And so I got really close with some female FBI agents and cops in New York sort of figure out what, hear what their experiences were. And I wrote a pilot called Lady Cops, which was about that and the right sample and the right time. And that is how I got my first writing job. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great story. Honestly, like what an amazing progression through the industry. Just kind of shows that like one perseverance pays off eventually because you could have like stopped it so many times and been like, Oh, I didn't get into these writing things. I didn't get this thing. I didn't get, you know, and so the fact that you kept going and just felt the need to like write that much and make your portfolio as good as you possibly could is really, really cool. Thank you. And this industry feels like a giant mythic quest to me. I feel like if you really want it and you're willing to like go through the swamp and climb over the mountain and fight the troll and all these things, like you will get to where you're going. It's just, you know, are, do you want to do all that? Yeah. And I think a lot of people look at, you know, sometimes they tend to just look at the end result and say, oh, well, look at what you're doing right now. You made it. You did what. And you're like, no, no, no. Like I went through hell and back to get here. And like, I'm still, you know, like still part of the struggle every day. Because I think people, 
especially in Hollywood are like, oh, you're like set now. And it's like, no, not really. And even I think not to go into the strike, but I think that's such a huge thing with the strike is like, you can be at the top of your game writing for these huge shows and still making no money and like trying to survive in life. And that in and of itself is a huge burden to bear on top of everything else. It is wild. You're right. I also, cause I really didn't know a writer's journey until I was working on Bates Motel and they dropped us into having our office in the production office. And so when we were starting our part of the job, the writers were halfway through their process. And when we were halfway through our process, post would move in. It was a really incredible experience and exposure to be able to see what a young writer experiences, what a senior writer experiences. But I think there are so many people that don't know the different tiers within the hierarchy of writers, of a writer's room. So I would love if you could share sort of like what each position is and where it falls in the space? (laughs) Absolutely. That's a great question. I get it all the time, actually, from people who are fans, but just like you said, have never had the opportunity to see how it works on the inside. So there are, I don't have to have to count them, but I'll name them all. So I like to to use the analogy that the levels of TV writing are like karate belts in as much as they reflect your experience and mastery. And so staff writer would be like a white belt, a novice. Technically, staff writers are apprentices. They're the first union position that we have. And I mean, depending on the show or showrunner that you have, I'll speak for myself. My expectation for a staff writer is nothing. What I expect from them is to come into the room and learn, watch, observe, get their confidence, see the style of pitching in the room, and then little by little, learn to like get up on their baby horse legs and like, you know, start to run with us. And I think a lot of stat, this is if any, if any writers are listening or, or hopeful writers are listening, I think a lot of writers put a lot of pressure, staff writers put pressure on themselves to be like amazing right out of the gate, because I would say generally writers are overachievers. You wouldn't have gotten to where you are if you hadn't like worked super hard. So they really want to impress. They really, that's not all we need. We need you to observe us and let us mold you into our image so that you can be really useful to us next season. So that's a staff writer. Staff writers often do get to write scripts, but unfortunately they don't get paid for it under the current MBA. We're trying to fix that. The next level is a story editor. And story editor is someone who's at least written, generally, I've never seen a bump after 12 episodes of TV. Usually it's 24 episodes. And then you get bumped up to story editor. Story editors, they're slightly more experienced. It's the next level. So we expect you to help break us, help break stories, help pitch jokes, and also like help the younger writers like get, get acclimated. Again, not, not too much is expected, but we expect you to like be participating more in the room. Executive story editor, I think this is where producing duties begin. This is where the break happens in the pay hierarchy. Staff writers and story editors are paid weekly. And then once you become an executive story editor, you're paid per episode. With that comes producing responsibilities, which include participating in casting, producing on set. Although story editors and staff writers have the opportunities and shows that I've been on to be on set as well. Being in post-production, it again, all depends on the showrunner and how 
comfortable they are with letting other people do those jobs. I love delegating. I think it's super important. And it's really important to teach other writers how to produce in that way. And then after executive story editor, it really just becomes the titles are really just indicators of years of experience. So after executive story editor is co-producer, followed by producer, followed by supervising producer, then co-executive producer, and finally executive producer, which is reserved for creators of shows, showrunners, or very, very, very experienced upper-level writers, like people who have been working for 25 plus years. There's also consulting producers. That is another category. Consulting producers are people who are not on full-time, but they come in to consult and give help and help break stories. And maybe we'll sometimes write that. Those are just a little bit niche, but that's generally like people who you want to have, but can't afford, but you want them at least a few days a week. That's generally how you work out happening. Yeah. I always thought consulting was like, maybe more of like, if you're doing Grey's Anatomy and you need a doctor or a neurologist to like help the story. They might, I don't know, might they get that title? They might, or they might call them medical consultant. Yeah. And it's, we talked about in our second episode about the divide within the casting community. And this is also something I want to talk about because I remember a few years ago, feels like yesterday, but time is a vortex now, but there was a big thing to do with agents, packaging, writers, that whole thing. And at the time, and I'm just like spectator outside looking in, it felt like that created a bit of a divide between the more experienced and the up and coming writers. What was that? And then what does that environment look like now? Right. So you're talking about the agency campaign, which took place 2018, 2019. Yeah, 2019. Where, okay, so I'll start by explaining what packaging, what packaging should be ideally the platonic version of packaging and what packaging became that we had to deal with. Back in the day, films were made through a variety of ways, private equity, studio financing, the way you would get that financing and and the way you would get a studio interested or get a financier interested is by packaging, meaning you would attach cast, attach directors. And so what's agencies started to do was say, oh, we'll package it for you with all of our clients, which off the top sounds great, except for they took the stance. But if we do that, we are profit participants. We want 10% or whatever percent they would say. We want profit participation, meaning they want a cut of the profits. So what they would say to their writer clients who were like the showrunners or the writers, they would say, well, listen, we don't want to like overcharge you or anything. So how about this? How about you don't pay commission and we get that money? And to a lot of showrunners and writers that they were like, oh my God, that's great. I get to keep 10% that I would normally give them. And I don't have to worry about the rest of that money. Well, the studio will figure it out. Not really realizing if you had a hit on your hands, you just gave up a shit ton of your own points. Like your profit participation, they were getting a big piece of the pie. And what started happening more and more and more was that agencies were way more inclined to try to develop your spec projects and attach cast to them and try to go out and sell them instead of staffing writers. So for example, it it did happen to me where I would say, Hey, I need a job because I need to work. And they'd say, cool, 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 cool. How about we set you up with this producer? You could talk about 
a TV idea you have. I said, I'm happy to do that, but also I need to work. Can I have a job interview, please? Can I go take showrunner meetings? But they just didn't want to expend the energy to do that or, or tie up their writers if the reward for selling a TV show was so much bigger than the paltry 10% of my weekly staff writer salary. So we needed to realign agents' uh, interests with ours. They had become totally separate and counter to one another. And so that's what the agency campaign was. We had asked them, please, no more packaging. They're, they were like, we're going to do packaging. And then they were like, well, okay, the book, goodbye. And everybody said it wouldn't work. Everybody said it wouldn't work. But collective action is so powerful. Collective bargaining is so powerful. Labor is so powerful that in the end, they came around and they were like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Please come back. <laughs> and you know what? I think it's really, it immediately saw a difference for writers. It made a huge difference. So when you were saying, did it separate younger writers and older writers? Yes. In a lot of ways it did. I think what it really did separate, more, more than separate, what it did, I think it underscored certain communities of writers and the fears of certain communities. For example, very, very successful writers who had built up their empires through the help of their agents were worried on a personal level. Like, is my agent going to hate me? We're also, writers are also very like, people pleasers were always like, oh, like me, like me, like me. And so if you're taking this hard stance, it's very confrontational towards people who have helped you build your career. So I think a lot of successful writers were worried about that and worried about deals that they had in the works that could no longer be shepherded by these agents that were in the process of making it happen. And younger writers who were less successful, who were just terrified they could, wouldn't be able to get meetings because they didn't really also have a manager. I, early on in my career, I elected to have managers and agents, which a lot of writers make that choice and they do kind of different things, but it's just more help to develop your work and to get more meetings. And so luckily I had my managers who are unbelievable. They're so incredible. They worked so hard to like, you know, pick up a lot of the slack and they just have done so much. And I'm just very grateful to them. But I know it was really hard for a lot of writers who were worried. Ultimately though, I think what, and no, hang on agents. I love my agent too. <laughs> but I do think what we did see also is that a lot of jobs also come through your personal networks. The writers were still able to work. The Writers Guild did a really great job of setting up staffing portals, people to like put up their samples and indicate availability. People got jobs off of that. And I don't, I do, I do not think it was at the time of like peak TV. I honestly, I could be wrong and be talking out of my ass and I'll get a mean tweet later, but I don't think it was as bad as people thought it was going to be. I think writers still continue to get work. That's great. And you made such an impact. Yeah. And we're really grateful that the, you know, the agent's came back around to align with our interests. And so it's been much better since. That was super enlightening because I, from the outside, I was just like so unsure of what was actually happening and what the effect would be of it. But to sort of dive into what is currently happening with the strike. So you are, I didn't know there was a position like this please tell me what it is. You are a strike captain. Yes, I'm a show captain and a strike captain. What does that mean? <laughs> Basically, what it is is a shop steward in like a Teamster speak or IA speak. It's a shop steward, meaning you are a representative of a group of people, your fellow writers, and you sort of help bring messaging back to your 
group of writers, whether it's a show that you're on, I'm, I'm captaining a group of showrunners during this negotiation. So I bring communication from the guild back to my group of showrunners. I take their concerns up to leadership, facilitate answering questions. It's really just like a helper position, honestly. And when now that we are on strike, there's also other logistical responsibilities involved in making sure people are in a place at a time to picket, communicating news or information regarding how, you know, the negotiations are going. And as much as we are allowed to communicate it, you know, a lot of our communications, we keep private because they're important for our strategy, you know? Yeah. So in this strike, I keep getting this question on this side of the pond because we, it's very unique being in a different country when this is happening, especially a country that is not regulated by the same unions and whatnot, but are still in a working relationship with them. So I guess it's kind of a twofold question of like, what do you see being like the biggest tipping points in getting back on track? If you can disclose, like, what are the things that, you know, mainly are being asked for that, like, if you can get to agreement on these things, it'll be great. And then also, like, how long do you think it'll take for them to wake up and realize and for this to become because you kind of said earlier that it was, they're being a bit ridiculous with their responses and stuff. So like, how, how long do you think it's going to take for them to to come with realistic responses? Those are great questions. Those are really great questions. So the first question is, what do I think are the biggest issues for writers? So I, none of, nothing I'm going to say now is, is not public. It's all public. Our pattern of demands is public. And what we've asked for and what we've gone to the studios for, it's all, you can read about it on our website. So I think based on survey that was taken through of our whole entire membership, a very thorough, long survey asking us questions specifically about our work pattern, our income patterns, how it's been going the last few years. Writers indicated that they were participating in more mini rooms. And for people that don't know what a mini room is, a mini room is kind of just what it sounds like. It's a writer's room, but it's like chopped in pieces. So it's like 20 or 30% size of a normal writer's room. A normal writer's room is at least one writer per episode. Well, that's not true. In a short order, it's like one writer per episode. But usually it's like on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think we, it was 24 episode order. We had 16 writers. So there was like enough bodies to break story, write episodes, rewrite episodes, punch up jokes, be on set. And we had like one or two writers who would help showrunner in post, you know? And that's, you need the bodies to cover all those areas of making a show. On in many rooms, you often get, and there's a difference between mini rooms and pre-green light mini rooms, and I'll explain that in a second. But basically, the showrunner will say, Hey, we want the studio will say, Hey, we love your idea. We love it so much. We want to give you a mini room, a pre-green light mini room to like flush it out before we pick it up. We like it. Not sure if we love it. So you have to basically you're basically on audition for like 10 weeks of work and you get maybe like two, three, four, if you're lucky writers and yourself to like break the entire season out 
write up a Bible for them, pitch it to them and write episodes all in 10 weeks with very few people. That's a monumental task. And to me, it demonstrates two things. It demonstrates the fact that they're desperate to save money and don't understand they're being penny wise and pound foolish. They don't understand what we do or the the writing process that the first few weeks of a writer's room is where all the heavy lifting goes. It's you're coming up with story arcs for all the different characters. You're creating a whole, in the way that an episode has three acts, a season arc has three acts too. So you're not just breaking episodes, you're breaking a micro version and a macro version. And on top of that, you're writing episodes, getting notes from them, rewriting episodes. And it's just, it ends up being super rushed, super stressful. And a lot of the burden, a lot of the time they don't, when showrunners see this and they hear this, they're like, oh my God, I need the best people for the job. I need people that I know and I'm who are super experienced. So they're going to spend their budget on hiring upper level writers with tons of experience. And guess what that demographic is? So it's, it's hurting writers in a lot of different ways. It's preventing women and writers of color from getting and maintaining employment. And it's making the process so much more difficult than it should or could be. And, and, oh wait, here's the worst part, the money. Mini rooms, because they're usually 10 weeks or less, don't fall, it's a loophole. They don't fall under the regular employment minimums for our minimum basic agreement. And it's a weekly, even if you're an upper level writer who you're supposed to get paid by episode, remember how I said that before? You are reverting back to a weekly. It's a much lower amount. And it's basically what a story editor would make. So you immediately, just by virtue of it being a mini room, they exploit that loophole and it's everybody gets the same amount. There's even if you're a co-EP or a story editor, you're getting the same amount. So people are making so much less money. That's where the decline in writer income is from where I said at the beginning of the episode, writer incomes decline 23%. That's what it's from. It's from mini rooms predominantly. And I think that is a huge issue for a lot of TV writers. I will speak now on behalf of the feature writers who have been abused for so long. The way feature writing works is it happens in steps. Like you turn in a, a draft is one step. Oftentimes they're asked to do complete revisions for free. That's the second step. So they're asking to be paid for that second step. I think that's very important for that group of writers. The other thing that we are really concerned about, I mentioned earlier, is AI. AI, you know, not a technophobe or anything like that, but studios are seeming very interested. And I I say this based on their response to our proposal about it. Seem very interested to see what AI can provide for free that we charge for. And so we wanted to put a stipulation in the contract that, you know, writers, we just want to define in our MBA that writers must be human beings. And <laughs> they just are not into it. <laughs> wow. Yes. Just simple ask. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, and we, do you think they'll budge on that? They're going to have to if they want to work with us, I think, you know, and in your second question was, you know, how long is this going to take? I think writers have incredible resolve. We sh- we demonstrated that in the 2007-2008 strike. Very similarly, a little thing called the internet. 
we were like, hey, this internet thing's going to be like a real thing. The studios are like, no, it's not. Meanwhile, they're creating Hulu. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) They know the utility and the value of this technology. And we did too. The guild, the guild, I got to say, I just had to like brag about my union for a second. The guild is full of such smart, like in touch, like finger on the pulse, nerdy people in a good way. You know, they really see, they see what's happening. They know the profession. They know the business. They're very fucking savvy. And so they saw it about the internet and they're seeing it about AI. And I think because of that, we're going to hold, obviously we're going to hold firm. We really, 98% of the membership voted for the strike. Like we really believe in fighting for these causes. Everybody's, the solidarity has been incredible. We had a member meeting last night where every, a rep from every single union showed up to back us too. So we're not the only ones. IA, Teamsters, SAG, everybody has these concerns and is feeling the belt tightening from the studios so much so. And so if it's, and we are, we're like the canary in the coal mine. We are the ones who have to come, we need to be the brave entity who goes first and holds firm. Because if we are wishy-washy, if we backslide on our demands, that's going to be, make it so much worse for our fellow, you know, craftspeople. It's just untenable. Just to sort of piggyback on that, we are Teamsters, Jen and I are. So, you know, casting director is part of the 399. There are so many people that are confused. I don't know, just in terms of that alignment of like, what does that mean? How do we support? Is that, you know, you guys are on strike. What happens to the productions that are currently shooting? Do people put their pencils down? Like, what is that supposed to look like? Yes. So most recently, Teamster, I guess when you call her Cap- Captain? Lindsay? Shannon Doherty. Or Shannon, yeah. Lindsay. Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> Shannon, Shannon <laughs> Hallowell. Such a casting. Lindsay Doherty. Yeah. What a madass, by the way. Yeah. Has said that Teamsters will not cross the picket line. So what we've been seeing, we've had some really, really incredible experiences just yes, this morning and yesterday. We have our picket line up at Studio Gates and Teamster trucks pull up and they, they don't cross. And that's been an unbelievable, amazing sacrifice that they're making that we hope we can use, you know, to help get you guys a better deal when it's your turn to negotiate. You'll have our solidarity as well. Now, to answer your question about you, so say say your office is on the lot and you're a teamster, you're not meant to cross. It's obviously a personal choice, you know. What about productions that are currently, that all the episodes have been written, all those things? I've, I've heard people saying that script coordinators were like the busiest people leading up to the strike declaration. So what does that mean for those productions? They're done, they're down too, or how does that work? IA is faced with a difficult decision. They want to support us, but I think they're having to make some hard choices because, you know, it's livelihood. And I, we understand that. At least I understand that. I'll speak for myself because I don't really know what our union party line is about that, but I'll speak for myself as I do. I get it. I get it. We would love it if you could be in solidarity with us. The strike will go a lot faster if you do. But yeah, I think they have a choice to make whether or not they're going to cross the picket line. And same thing for all the other unions as well. So it's a choice. If you guys decide you want to stand in solidarity with us, there is a strike fund that we have to support entertainment workers 
who want to make that choice, we have funds available for them. The Entertainment Community Fund is also available for people affected by the strike. So if you want to stand in solidarity for us, there are ways for you to stay afloat. That's great. I I feel like a lot of people don't know about those, you know, funds that are available. So that's really great to share. You know, there was something that you said that really resonated with me about they just don't understand what we do. And I think that is something that we can all relate on because that's what Jen and I talk about so much is that people don't understand what casting directors do. Everybody's very cavalier about how much you pay and you know how much staff you need and all of these things very similar to to the writers room. And so I would like to you know take the opportunity to talk to you about what is your engagement with the casting process? What have you learned from your growth from you know being a staff writer to becoming a showrunner and how have you changed your perspective on those things? Sure. So my exposure pre prior to becoming a showrunner, my exposure to casting was only watching selects and basically helping make a decision like voting on, did I like this performance? Do I like this actor, et cetera. But when I became a showrunner, it totally opened up for me. And I saw how complex and nuanced your job is. And it so on Gordita Chronicles, we had a very unique casting mandate, but also like a stop not style. What's the word? We had diver, we had incredible diversity in our cast. And it was a challenge, I think, on a variety of levels. We had kids, first of all, and we had the desire to have authenticity with regard to ethnicity. So I'm not just talking about like race, even more, more minutia specifically, like we wanted Dominicans to play Dominicans, you know, and that ended up being cool, like very challenging because I'd love to hear your perspective on it from where I'm sitting access, these actors exist, but the access is very, very tough because they don't have representation sometimes, or they're not put forward by reps, or I don't really know. I know they're out there because we found them. Ultimately, we found who we, the perfect people that we needed, but it was very challenging. And I saw our casting director, all everything he had to do to find them. It was like, like going into like the nooks and crannies of the world to like look for this perfect person and it's a lot of labor it's a lot of like artistic labor to envision and like refine the vision of who you're looking for and then there's like the physical labor of like actually finding that person and then bringing them in and doing the readings and like working with the kids who some of them are shy to what coax them out of their shell and then the revisions to the sides and then helping we have to cater not just to the showrunner but also the studio and the network it's like it's huge it's a huge undertaking a huge job and you have my utmost respect <laughs> <laughs> can i ask who was your casting director yes byron bean is our casting director uh-huh. okay he was working as a casting assistant before on a show that i had worked on I was also assisting Carla Hool, who cast our our pilot. So we ended up working with Byron as our casting director for the series. Oh, that's awesome. I love that you're getting the opportunity to make a bit newer, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was his first first one on his own. 
Wow, that's so cool. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's what we're, we're constantly trying to advocate of just letting the rest of us in. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what, you know, so it's always a celebration. My friend Charlene Lee, she did, she cast beef with her partner. And for me, when I saw her name on that screen, I was just over the moon because a win for her is a win for all of us, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I I can totally echo that sentiment. It is hard to break in. It really, really is on every level for every area of our field. And it is an amazing feeling to see someone get through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I will say like, to go back to your point earlier about kind of finding all those nooks and crannies of like all these different ethnicities or, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Like I, I just started helping a friend out here as a producer who it's a whole wonderful movie about a Sri Lankan woman and to find a Sri Lankan actress who can lead a film that's very like deep and multiple levels of acting. It's like, you have to really look and you want, and she was like, I don't, I won't compromise. It has to be a true Sri Lankan woman. Like it's, it's kind of fascinating in terms of all the tools and the resources, because then it stretches us as casting directors to think outside our normal boxes of just releasing a breakdown or going to the agents and saying, okay, I'm going to go out to this community that I know, you know, embrace in Sri Lanka or, you know, go out into the community and find these people. And it's never an easy task. I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you that much. And it's like, it kind of makes our job, you know, 10 times harder to like, you know, go and like find all these smaller minority versions of whatever character you're looking for. But yeah, but it's honestly, it's one of, again, I should have one of my favorite parts of the job because it opens up, it makes you open up your mind to like all these new people, all these different worlds that you can be a part of and think outside the box and be creative and trying to find the right person. And to me, it's super exciting because then you get to find new actors that way. You're not just seeing the same 10 people on the screen. Yes. And it makes a difference. It's an intangible, but it really does make a difference. You know, our, our mom, Diana Maria Riva was, is Dominican. And we got, we had a lot of pressure to like cast people who weren't Dominican in that role. And Claudia, bless her, was like, no, it has to be. The accent is very specific. The expressions are very specific. And she was right. She's totally right. But it's a hard thing to explain to an exec who doesn't really have a lot of experience in that world. You know, but to be like, what's the difference between someone who's Dominican and someone who's Cuban? Like, aren't you guys like kind of roughly in the same part of the... So it's like cultural nuances like that. And I think that's something that the fans of Gordita Chronicles, the ones who were Latinx. I mean, we had, we had a huge fan base that wasn't Latinx too, who were like here for the cute little chubby girl and who were here for like the eighties aspect of it or the comedy aspect of it. But the people who watched it to see themselves on screen, it made a huge difference for them. And the fact that we could differentiate between in that world, we built, it was 1980s Miami and politically and historically 1980s Miami has a lot of Cuban expats. It has a lot of Dominicans, Colombia, mostly Caribbean people, like people from the Caribbean parts of the world. And so you can hear it in the accent. And so people who grew up there, who knew that experience, they, they were like, wow, like you make all these Cuban specific jokes that people would know. So it, it really just like added to the veracity of the world and the picture we were trying to paint. But again, I know that's very niche seeming, but it made a big difference. So yeah. Yeah. And I think also just like, 
being able to showcase an underrepresented community is so valuable and, and mining that talent, especially when it comes to kids is a challenge for somebody who's worked on a lot of things with kids. It is a struggle to keep pushing into seeing what else is out there because you've seen hundreds of kids, you've seen, you know, you keep going and you hope you, you, you know, find those diamonds and, you know, eventually you do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such, and it's so worth it when you do. Yeah. Curious, what do you look for when you, when you are trying to bring on a casting director and you're onto your project with, we are taking meetings, like what are the qualities that you're looking for? Passion. I know it's more, it's more about how you guys feel about the project, because if you're excited about the project, you're going to want to work on it. You're going to want to do a good job. I feel like for me, that's the answer. That's the same answer. When people ask me like, what do you look for in an agent or a manager? I'm but meeting these people. Like who should I pick? Like somebody who gets it, someone who likes it because it's going to be a long fucking slog <laughs> if you don't like it. <laughs> you know, and someone, and also someone who, who has, who's very even, even I'm not a yeller. I don't like yelling. I don't like crises. I like, Oh, well, we can figure it out. Oh, we fucked up this thing. We're going to fix it and figure it out. You know, it like no one's on fire. No one's bleeding. We're going to figure this out. So I love that's That's what passion and somebody who's even healed. I love that. So now we have a little fun thing we do towards the end of our episodes where do you want to ask us anything? And we'll give you our unfiltered crazy responses. Well, I'm curious. We actually covered a couple of the questions. I have two questions then, since we covered some of them. But since we're talking about diversity, I would love your take on why do you think it's been so hard? I mean, I felt like we, there was a period in time where we were doing pretty good with representation in front of the camera. But how are you, like, what obstacles do you guys come across when trying to support diversity in front of the camera? Because we know you're trying to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Jess. I think, you know, the struggles that I have faced have been more when I'm dealing with ensembles that are familial, like connections, Uh because once you put one piece in place, then you're sort of tied to, depending on the story, you're tied to look, make, yes, (laughs) a specific space. So I think that's where I tend to struggle because I do, you know, we both sort of do a lot of indie film. I think in TV, there's more of an emphasis to be, to move in that direction, to have representation, to have the diversity. And I think everybody's way more conscientious about it. With indie film, because it is a space that is 90% on based on marquee names and bringing people in, you know, that are going to help greenlight your movie in some space goes back to packaging. So you end up having this conversation with your producers who run it up the CAA ladder when they tell you how much international value of everybody has. And the pool of actors who are diverse that actually give you and I mean, it's like Morgan Freeman, Viola Davis. I think we're just getting into like the Latinx, you know, community that is that is breaking through. It's such a small pool of diverse actors that will actually greenlight a film, you know, so unless it's got a studio behind it, and they're like, let's do it. Indie is like the hardest space. And then what you end up doing is once you attach a name, especially the last few movies I've done have been like a family set up, you attach the person that gives you the financing, and then you're married to a certain look. So that's been my experience. Yeah. Gosh, it's unfortunate. <laughs> I would say, you know, it's interesting. I totally agree on all those points. But I also agree, I think there was this time because I know how you said there's kind of a shift there. 
And I think what happened is it's almost got to the point where everybody got so paranoid about it, especially on studio levels and stuff where they're like, I call it the cran box casting, where instead of actually being thoughtful and like considerate about your choices and how you're like casting, it was like, okay, I need one of those, check one of those, check one of those. And when you do that, you lose a lot of the creativity and the cohesiveness to a cast. And I have found it kind of hard in my position where my entire philosophy when going into something, unless it's a biopic or something where you have to base it off the real person that you, you're, again, you're married to a, a, a certain ethnicity or look, is I'm always like, just open it up. Open every roll up should be to everybody and the best person wins. And I had one movie in particular right before the pandemic that the director pushed back on it really hard. And he's like, again, I don't... I think it was just like maybe ignorance on his part, but he just kind of kept being like, we have to have this person be this and this person be that. And I was like, why, why can't we just like, was one of those things where I, that's my biggest like hurdle. A lot of times is trying to get them just to be like, let me just read everybody. I'm going to read every rainbow color there is out there. And then let's put the best actor in the best place because the majority of the times, whenever I get the freedom to do that, I would say almost all my cast leans like predominantly ethnic of some sort. But then also, then you get this beautiful chemistry on screen that then highlights the people to move into that next level. Where if you're just checking the box, most of the time they may not be right for the role and then they're not going to move to the next level. And that's kind of where I see some of the blocking happening and maybe where that disconnect happened because now people are almost being too pointed in it. And it's like, let it happen naturally with a very... I, and I don't want to say naturally because there are still like, you know, obvious biases that get, you know, people have, but like a way of being a proactive collaborator and just saying, let's do this and always being mindful of like, yes, we want to make sure we're representing everyone, but also let it work so that the people of color can be spotlit into this like a right role and then they can move on and then they can get the financing. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. I totally agree. And I think part of what you're saying, Karki, if I'm wrong, is take a risk. You know, I think we had that issue with our our little star. You know, she had not done anything yet. She was green, 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 had taken acting classes for like a summer and that was it. But she had this charisma. She just, she was the girl and was up against this other girl who was a bit more polished who had done some Nickelodeon shows, we had to really fight. And it wasn't just studio, it was some other producers too. It was like people just are risk averse. I think humans are risk averse. And I think to be better people, to be better at our job, better professionals, better as a humanity, we need to be less risk averse. We need to take chances. Like you were saying, bring new people in. We need new people. And I, we can't do that if the people at our level aren't, you know, allowed aren't people aren't working with us to take those chances yeah yeah 100 absolutely and that's what this is this industry right now is a hundred percent risk averse i mean you just look at the content that's being created the reformatting of harry potter bringing back twilight 
we're just going back to what was successful IP. It makes me really sad because it's like you, especially following a year where the Oscars was, you know, the best picture Oscar was everything everywhere all at once. And you really see someone who's taking a risk, get that payoff because it is so out of the ordinary, you know, I think people want that. People want out of the ordinary. I think we have a lot of same old, same old, you know, we really need something different. And I think it's hard to get people to move away from what's safe and what works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last thing, since we've kept you for like over an hour now, I'm sorry, but (laughs) no, it's fine. This is so enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. This, I mean, this is a very serious question. So prepare yourself. But what we really want to know is if the world was ending tomorrow and you could have your favorite cocktail, what would it be? Oh, margarita. Rocks and salt. Nice. Yes. (laughs) All day. I'm a margarita girl. Love it. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We've loved your your thoughts, your experiences, the information you shared. And, you know, we're really excited to support the WGA and you. And we're also just very excited. I'm personally excited to see the continued evolution of you. (laughs) you. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be invited. Had the best time with you guys. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.